Please take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6. The last time we were in the book of John, we finished with verse 34 of chapter 6. And today, we're going to look at one verse, and it will cause us to look at a broader, longer passage of Scripture from the Psalms. But we want to begin here with verse 35 of John chapter 6. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. A moment of interpretation. Here is a better, more emphatic translation. Jesus is saying, I and I alone am the bread of life. We know that from the wording which he chooses and which John records. Jesus alone is the bread of life. And he who comes to Jesus will not never is actually what he says. He uses a double negative in this statement. Will not never hunger. And he who believes in me will not never thirst. Jesus assumes that the world can never satisfy us. All that the world has to offer. Faster cars. More beautiful women, nicer, bigger homes. None of those things satisfies us. In fact, the acquisition of those things, whether it's in relationships or possessions or prestige, all those things leave us even more restless than when we first began our quest. We are afflicted with dissatisfaction, boredom, and anxiety, unable to find authentic rest and real peace, that goal for which we are constantly striving. We read from the book of Ecclesiastes earlier, from Solomon, the man who was described, rightly so, as the most wise man alive in his day. And we read of his own dissatisfaction. We read of his great achievements in the area of learning, in the area of laughter. He spared himself no pleasure, whether it was with women or with wine. We are told in the book of 1 Kings that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His lust overflowed undoubtedly. But he still found himself hungering for more of something that would bring satisfaction. His labor endeavors were legendary. A man who had a kind of mind that wrapped itself around every possibility for finding some sort of fulfillment that the world has to offer. He was a wealthy man, incredibly wealthy. He was a wise man. The first Sunday of this month, in the evening, I turned the television on and I found myself watching the Fox News Channel and there was a new program which was introduced that evening. It was entitled The Wise Guys. And I was immediately interested because Bill Bennett was the host. He was the facilitator. He was one of the wise guys. And he was joined by Ari Fleischer, who was once the press secretary in the White House, also with Alan Dershowitz, the well-known Harvard professor of law, 
Ollie North, perhaps you remember him as the leading figure or one of the leading figures in the war in Nicaragua and Central America. And then there was a man whom I'd never heard of before, Steve Wynn. And I soon learned that he was a very wealthy man. These wise guys around the table. I listened intently because these men know a lot about the condition of America's economy and the political realm, the philosophical realm, the educational realm. I wanted to learn what I could from these wise men. Just a few days ago, we began to learn more about Steve Wynn than we want to know. Here's a man who is a multi-billionaire. His net worth at the end of last year was $3.4 billion. He's a man who's had everything he could ever want. He was Solomon-like in what he had acquired. He had parlayed his father's bingo thing on the East Coast into many, many casinos in the United States and abroad. He had it all, but he really had nothing because of the fact that he was seeking satisfaction in something other than the bread of life. Jesus says, I, I am the bread of life. It's interesting. If you'll turn now with me to Psalm 143, that David, the father of King Solomon, who said, by the way, there is nothing new under the earth. Isn't that true? We hear something like we've learned about Steve Wynn in 2018, and we can go back 3,000 years. Solomon, same thing then. If we were to go back even deeper into human history, we could find that this story is repeated over and over again. Because people do not go to the bread of life. They seek fulfillment in other ways. Even after people come to know God. Remember what David said to his son Solomon when he was passing the crown to him? He said in front of all the leaders of Israel, it's recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. He said, This simple word of advice, know the God of your father. That was it. Know the God of your father. David had come to know God. He knew Him intimately. But do you know, even in the life of King David, who is described as a man after God's own heart, we can get off track. We can deviate for the path from the path, rather, which God has given us to travel. Solomon's own words ring true to us and have throughout all generations, where he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him. That would suggest in every arena of life, I am to acknowledge Him. And by the way, the word translated acknowledge in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Literally is the word no. So let me repeat it and insert the word no. It's the same word that David used speaking to his son when he coronated him king. Where he said, know the God of your father. It's the word of intimate knowledge. Listen to what Solomon wrote. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him. And He will make your path straight. David knew this. Solomon had knowledge of this. You and I have knowledge of this. But there are moments in our lives where we don't trust the Lord. And consequently, we deviate from the pathway which is the straight pathway. Forgetting that that promise in the Word of God given through Solomon is that the Lord will make our paths straight. The language which is adopted by Solomon there is the language of engineering. When a king was taking his army into battle, he would send engineers ahead and they would clear a pathway through the brush and clear away the rubble so that the army would be able to march unimpeded into battle and win a victory. We need to understand that we always need to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Always know Him in all our ways. We need to live in a state of revival in our lives. I remember what I was amused to hear. It's been 40 years ago almost now. I was listening to a great man of God preach the Word of God. His name was Vance Havner. He was real folksy. He came from the mountains of western North Carolina. But he was a very wise man, steeped in the Word of God, filled with the Spirit of God. And he said to a group of pastors at Glorietta, New Mexico, he said, we need something other than revival in the church. He said, we need revival in the church. Obviously, he was speaking about many people have the impression that they are alive spiritually, but actually they're dead. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Sardis? He said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, is what Jesus says, while there's still opportunity. And the Lord would say that to us today, individually, as well as a church. In this psalm that we're about to read, this is penned by David. We do not know the circumstances of this psalm, but we know from reading it a couple of things that are important for us that really are the basic elements of a genuine spiritual revival. Here's the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 4. David had a sense of desperation. And let's read it together, beginning with verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And the New American Standard supplies the exclamation point after each of these petitions which David made to the Lord. David was a troubled soul. He says as much later in this psalm. And here we see desperation. In order for us to really have what the Lord wants us to have, we must be desperate. We must be men and women who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it's only when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, according to what Jesus says 
in the Beatitudes that we will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus says, for they shall be satisfied. The sources of his desperation are clear. Let's look at verse 2. Here's one source. He says to the Lord, And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Whatever had characterized David's life to bring him to this point of spiritual desperation was linked to unrighteous behavior. He knew he was responsible for the condition in which he found his soul. His soul was troubled mainly because of the choices which he had made. He had made poor choices. He didn't explain what those choices were. Nevertheless, those poor choices led him to plead with the Father, not to judge Him. It's worth noting that in the second part of verse 2, He says, In your sight, no man living is righteous. Now, truth be told, most of us think we're right. Do you ever think you're right? Very few of us think we're ever wrong. Now, I'm assuming a lot here. Maybe I can leave the women out of the equation, but I'm talking about a man now. We just don't think we're capable of being wrong, right? Correct? Yeah, that's true. We're like that. But when a man or a woman becomes desperate in light of the dissatisfaction and restlessness and hopelessness, when that person recognizes that he or she is responsible for the condition that he or she is plagued by. Would that God would work in the life of a Steve Wynn. I have a little hope for him. Here's why. I could tell in the roundtable discussion that he has a lot of admiration for Bill Bennett. Bill Bennett has his own history of problems, but he is a man after God's own heart from every indication of the things which he writes, at least. And they're friends. And Bill Bennett, hopefully we can pray that Bill Bennett will step forward because he has access to Steve Wynn's life. And Steve will have seen something in Bill Bennett that would recommend that he talk to him. And Steve Wynn would come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But we have to acknowledge our unrighteousness. David says elsewhere... He says, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Have you ever been full? Excuse me. Have you ever been full of anxiety because of the recognition of sin in your life? If so, and you believe you know the Lord, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God that He makes me miserable when I sin. Thank God that He pinpoints sin no sooner than I do it or think it. He pinpoints it. This is the work of God in our lives. Remember when David pled with God for forgiveness after a long siege of rebellion against him. In Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And he says, Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why? 
Because He knew the value, the inestimable value of the presence of the Holy Spirit in His life. Because the Holy Spirit cares enough about us in whom He dwells. And remember that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ, He lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. And He ministers conviction to us when we find ourselves in a situation of sin in our lives. Job, who was a righteous man, in fact, described by God Himself as the most righteous person on earth. After God and he had had a dialogue and God finally said, put a lid on it, Job, and listen to me. And then God reads him the right act. He speaks to him about the problems in his own life. He pinpoints his own insufficiency. That is Job's. And then after God is finished, do you recall what Job said? He said, until now my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the inevitable outcome when you see God. Not with your physical eyes. When I see God in my heart and in seeing Him, I first get a clear picture of myself And I may be righteous in my own eyes, but then when I see Him, it all changes. Because I see His holiness. I become like Isaiah when he was on his way to the temple. And when he arrived there, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his response was, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The first five chapters of Isaiah, we hear sermons which he preached on behalf of God, declaring the unrighteousness of surrounding peoples. And then when he saw God himself, he took a clear accounting of his life. Something like this evidently happened to David, leading to this psalm. He saw that he was unrighteous in God's sight. The source of his desperation, however, was not limited to the revelation of his unrighteousness in God's sight, but also to his enemy. Look at verse 3. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. Literally, the word translated overwhelmed means faint. So let me insert that. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. And my heart is appalled within me. The word appalled means desolate. You know what desolation is? Take a look at the Mojave Desert or the Sahara Desert. That is desolation, emptiness, dryness. That was his own assessment of his life because of his enemy. He does not name who his enemy was. But let's pause a moment and personalize this. Who is our enemy? Who is he? Well, in the book of First Peter, the Bible says, Our enemy, the devil, 
is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is anxious and restless. And that gives us insight into why what the world offers to us only contributes to our already existing restlessness because of our own sinful nature, our own fallenness, our flesh. And the devil is prowling around like some roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When speaking of the battle in which we find ourselves, our enemy, Paul says this, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If you're in some kind of contentious relationship with someone, maybe a wife or a husband or a child or a parent or a boss or someone in the church or someone in your neighborhood, when you and I find ourselves in contention with other people, we need to back away and say, my struggle is not with him. My struggle is not with her. My struggle is not with them. My struggle is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They are the minions of the devil. And the devil seizes upon our own unrighteousness and our own vulnerability to the world. And he does things that cause us to be further further entrenched and and mired in unrighteousness and restlessness that comes from that. A sense of desperation. Before a man or woman can really experience revival, she or he must reach a place of desperation to see his or her total need for a change of direction. That's the second thing, and this is the last major emphasis. So the elements of revival, what's the first one? A sense of desperation. We see this in David. But that leads to a change of direction. Let's pick up where we left off and look at verse 5. David says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your frame from me or I will become like those who go down to the pit. This idea of desperation continues to rear its head as we read through this passage of Scripture. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. A change of direction. We might say repentance. That's what repentance is, you know. Repentance is a change of mind which leads a change of direction in our lives. And it calls for reordered priorities. David reorders his priorities. He had been focusing on himself, on the world, and now he focuses on God. He remembered the days of old Isn't that what he says here in verse 5? I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands in verse 5. Here again we see the imprint of the Spirit of God upon his life. The Holy Spirit, Jesus promised, is the helper 
And He will teach us all things and bring us to remembrance, bring to our remembrance all those things which Jesus spoke. Holy Spirit works to remind us. David remembered the doings of the Lord and the work of His hands. Now, we don't know which ones he thought about, but let me give you a couple of possibilities. Remember, David was under siege at this point. The enemy was attacking him. When David was still a teenager, the most famous story about his life, to me at least, was his facing off with Goliath, the Philistine warrior, the hero of the Philistines. And how this teenager had the boldness, the courage, to come before this giant of a man over nine feet in height, clad in all his armor, bearing this ominous sword, and he comes against him with a sling and five smooth stones. A little known fact about that is that if you read further in the Old Testament, you'll realize that the reason he chose five smooth stones is not because he thought he would miss when he threw at Goliath, but Goliath had four other brothers. So he was being prepared for the possibility of facing off with them. And we know he said, I come in the name of the Lord my God, the God of Israel, and it is He whom you blaspheme, and it is He who will win the victory. And lo and behold, we know the story. Isn't it a great story? Unbelievably awesome story how he won that victory. Let's fast forward several years. Probably, maybe as many as 20 years. And we find him now king of Israel. And once again, he's facing the Philistines. This time, it's not Goliath. They hadn't gotten over the embarrassment that they had experienced at the hands of little David. And now David's king. So, they come to a valley called Rephaim. And David gets word of it. He knows he's got to face this enemy. And he comes to the Lord and seeks the Lord. Lord, what shall we do for a strategy? And this is told in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5. And the Lord tells him what to do. Go into battle and face them head on. They go into battle and they win a marvelous victory. The name of the place is Baal Perazim. It's a name which God gives Himself. Normally, we don't think of the name Baal or Baal, which means Lord in the Canaanite religion. We don't think of that as a word that should be associated with the Lord, right? But He gives Himself this name. Do you know what that name is? The Lord of the Breakthrough. Because God gave an incredible breakthrough and victory. And they win the victory. They go back triumphant to Jerusalem. And then, lo and behold, sometime in the future, not too distant future, word reaches David again that the Philistine army is approaching in the valley of Rephaim. So he comes to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord as he did previously. He says, Lord, what shall we do? What strategy should we employ? And the Lord says, this time, I don't want you to meet them head on. I want you to circle around behind them And position yourself. He told them exactly where to position themselves. In a grove of balsam trees. 
And he said, then you are to attack them from the rear. He did as he was told. And as the text says, he heard a sound of rustling in the tops of the balsam trees. You know what I think the sound was made by? It was the army of God, I believe. And he knew then that they were going to win. And the explanation of Samuel confirms this actually because it says the Lord won the victory. The army of the Lord won the victory. It was the Lord who gave the victory. So he hearkened back. It's so easy for us to forget the Lord. We get so involved in our lives. We don't remember the things which God has done. We need to pull out the album of our mind and the photographs that are in our memories. And we need to remember the things God has done in our lives. And we cannot help, as undoubtedly David could not help, when we think about the things which the Lord has done to worship the Lord. Can we? To honor Him, to be in awe of the Lord, to fear the Lord. Among the outcomes of his reordered priority was he remembered. And he also humbled himself like a child. I love this. Look at verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Can you see a little child? Isn't it wonderful? When your child, your grandchild, as a toddler or a little child reaches his or her hands up to you, isn't that wonderful? Does that delight you as a parent? Does it? Or a grandparent? What does that do to your heart when you have that happen to you? It melts your heart, doesn't it? And this is a picture of our surrendering ourselves to the Lord. Why do you think the Bible speaks of David frequently lifting his hands to the Lord. Why? Why do you suppose that the book of 1 Timothy says, let men everywhere lift up holy hands to the Lord in worship? Why? Because it's a picture of our acknowledgement of our inability in and of ourselves. And it's a picture of our recognition that He is our Father. And He loves us. He has compassion and compassion on us. And here we see him humbling himself. You know, there will never be revival in my life or yours until we reorder our focus on the Lord. And the consequence of that is I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I stretch out my hands to the Lord in worship and dependence. And I, as we saw from the song which we heard, we open our hands to give him control. And then he longed for God. As we look at this text, he says, My soul longs for you as a parched land. Do you have that longing in your heart for God? He hungered and thirsted for God. He was not looking to God for what God could do primarily. He was looking to God for who God was so he could know God. This is characteristic of a person who walks in revival in his or her life. This is a picture. One who remembers, one who humbles herself, one who longs for the Lord. And then he pled to the Lord for deliverance. Look at verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like one of those who go down 
into the pit. And then he puts himself in a position to hear God. You and I, if we're going to be free of all the restlessness, all the dissatisfaction, if we want clarification about what's going on in our lives, we are to be men and women who put ourselves in a position to hear from God. And how does God speak to us? How does He speak? Well, by His Holy Spirit. And what instrument has God chosen to speak to us? What instrument has the Holy Spirit Himself authored to give us capacity to hear His voice? Well, it's the Bible, isn't it? Let's look at verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. He puts himself in a position to hear. And he trusts in the Lord. All this to say, all these things, let's rehearse them quickly. He remembered what God had done. Then he humbled himself like a child. He longed for God. Not primarily for what God could do for him, but for God. He pled with God for deliverance. He put himself in a position to hear God. All this to say, he renewed his trust in the Lord. He says in verse 8, the second line, For I trust in you. A person who trusts in the Lord is a person who takes refuge in God. Look at the last sentence of verse 9. I take refuge in you. Would you hold your place here? And turn back to Psalm 91. I had the privilege to be invited to an appreciation dinner that's held annually by the Gideons. On Thursday night, I heard a man from Tupelo, Mississippi. His name is Charles Warren. Mr. Warren is a Gideon, a layman, godly man. And in his message to us that evening, he told a story of a man named Ephraim. Ephraim is a Nicaraguan. Perhaps you remember back in the day when there was a leftist takeover of Nicaragua, the Sandinistas. Does that name of the group remind you of anything? Well, they took over the land. Ephraim and his family were landowners. They were evicted from their land. The Sandinistas took control. Ephraim fled the country, as did so many other like him. And he found himself gathering together with other Contras. The Contras, of course, were the right-leaning people who had been pushed out of the country. And they were just over the border in Honduras. The Cocorio separated these two countries. And it was a barrier against harm from the Sandinistas. But the Contras, knowing Nicaragua was their country too, and they wanted to take it back, these Contras with inferior arms, the Sandinistas were armed by the Russians and the Cubans, they had inferior arms, but what they did, they would periodically and unsuspectingly cross over and make raids into the Sandinista-held territory, attacking the Sandinistan army. Well, Ephraim was one of the leaders of those forces. And he 
and his friends had made many forays into their homeland, trying to liberate it. And they were making yet another attack. And reconnaissance on the part of the Sandinistas, there had been some snitch who had told them that the Contras were coming. This had never happened before with this group. And these men were gathering on the Honduran side of the river. And as they were gathering, there were some Gideons who came and gave every one of the Contras a testament with the Psalms in the back. And they took them gladly. They didn't have time to read them at the moment. And one of his friends put his Bible in his backpack. And as they got into the river, all of a sudden they were ambushed. And so, by Ephraim's testimony, the Coco Rio ran red with blood. And somehow or another, he was able to get out of the river without being harmed. And a friend of his, the friend, remember, who put the Bible in his backpack was also with him. And there was a steep hill. If they could reach the top of the hill and crest the hill, they would be safe. Fire was coming, AK-47s, all kinds of heavy artillery was aimed at them. And as Ephraim told the story, his friend was hit from close range by an AK-47 cartridge. He says he's dead. He knew he was because no one would live with that kind of wound in the back in the area where he was hit. And he fell flat on his face. And he made his way as quickly as he could to check his friend the improbable scenario would be that he was alive. And when he got there, he took him by the shoulders, turned him over, and he was, of all things, breathing. He was alive. And he was able to get his friend up, and they made it to the top of the hill and over. And when they got to a place of safety, that friend began to examine the backpack of his friend, and he discovered an amazing thing. He discovered that the cartridge entered the backpack and it lodged in the Bible which had been given to this man. And it stopped at a certain point. It stopped in Psalm 91. Let's look at Psalm 91 together. Remember, David took refuge in the Lord. Our position is in the Lord. Now let me stop lest I forget it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is Jesus your refuge? Then you can be sure that there's no condemnation from you because Christ has been condemned for you. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lies waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. That's the verse that the point of that bullet rested on. What we know is that when we take refuge in the Lord, the Lord will not fail us. 
We will fail ourselves. People will fail us. The Bible says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, is what the Bible says. So, people who are renewed in their trust in God are people who flee to the Lord. Remembering the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And he became teachable. This is really important as we near the conclusion of our consideration of this matter of revival. He became teachable. Look what he says in the last line of verse 8. Teach me the way in which I should walk. This man is hungry to walk according to the way of the Lord. He had known what it was like before, but he's asking to be taught again. Lord, teach me in the way I should walk. Look at verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Do you ever feel like you're on a roller coaster spiritually? Down in the valley, up to the top, down in the valley, and your life undulates, it vacillates, there's a lack of consistency in your life? Here's what results... Be careful, understand this. We will have a consistent walk with the Lord when we walk in revival or revival. Psalm 48, this is what we hear David say. He said, I delight, this is awesome, I delight to do your will, O God. And he gives the reason why. For your law is within my heart. He's talking about the Torah, which means teaching. What we would call the writings of Moses and other writings which existed up until the time of David. We call it the Bible today. The Word of God was in his heart. And it results in a revived, peaceful soul. Look what he says in verse 11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. Pray that prayer to the Lord. And it will happen. You will have a peaceful soul. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And then, verse 12, a life of victory. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. God will answer this prayer for us if we come to Him as David came to Him. If we refocus our attention on Him and we humble ourselves. We remember what He has done. We long for Him. We plead with Him. We put ourselves in a position to hear the Lord, trusting in Him. And here's the last result. A proper view of ourselves. I am your servant. One of the things which plagues the American church is the misconception of God. We see God as at our beck and call. The absurdity of that should be apparent to everyone here. That is ridiculous. He is God. Look at the stars. Look at the mountains. Look at the universe as you're able to look at it through a giant telescope. God made all that. And what is man that you are mindful of Him? David understood this. Or the Son of Man that you should care for Him. We are the servants of God. That is what God wants for us. Going back to where we began, where Jesus says, if anyone is hungry 
let him come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him drink. And he will never, she will never be hungry or thirsty again. Our men are going to come. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. As we come to the Lord's table, I can think of no better response to this message than to do what David did. To humble his heart before the Lord. To trust in the Lord with all his heart. To get right with the Lord. This is a time for us to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, to examine ourselves, to see if we have that kind of upright relationship with Him, a relationship that is based totally upon the work of Christ on the cross, who gave His blood and His body for our sins, and who was raised from the dead, and who now lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for giving of Yourself completely for our salvation. We ask now that we would take the elements of your table in the right spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.